0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Women's History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network in collaboration with the Journal of Women's History. I'm Sandy Oguin, today's host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Jennifer Holland about her new book, Tiny You, a Western history of the anti-abortion movement. Dr. Holland is an assistant professor at the University of Oklahoma. Jen, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself, like where you were born, where you went to school, how you became interested in the history of the U.S. West and issues of gender and sexuality.
1: Uh, yeah. Um, thanks for having me. And I I grew up in a historical family, I guess. My dad was a eighth grade history teacher. So American history was really laced into my everyday life. Um of everything around me, my dad could sort of explain through the past uh, how how something came to be. I grew up in a small farming town in California called Hollister, um, and I but I went to school at the University of Michigan and I was a history major and I loved it. But I really became inspired by uh, the histories of gender and sexuality when I took. The class of um, Professor Regina Morant Sanchez who's a retired now I think but
0: oh, she, I remember her?
1: Yeah yeah she was wonderful and her class was um, you know it was a it was an American women's history class but she would sort of start the class every day with like uh, a newspaper from some sort of current issue right and, and she would very clearly link the, the history to something that was going on right then. And it was just amazing. And I'm sure she got a lot of um, blowback for it. I'm sure not everyone loved it, but I w- loved it and was so inspired. And, you know, so we, we finished the class with um, uh, histories of feminism and anti-feminism. And I, I really took that with me into my graduate work. Um, first at Utah State, where I got my, my master's degree. Um, and I had, and, and they ha- at that time, the Western Historical Quarterly was there. Um, Maria Montoya had suggested while I was at Michigan that I, I look into it. And then, um, and then I went on to Wisconsin, where I worked with Susan Johnson, both in histories of the U.S. West and um, in, in gender and sexuality. And of course, my experience as a Westerner had really led me to the, the interest in the U.S. West um, sort of the multiracial environments and ones that often were not fully represented in national histories Right, which often sort of centered right. in in the East, in very sort of biracial environments, um, not really engaging histories of empire or or immigration in the kind of ways that I um, I sort of lived in that in that world. So that's sort of what took me all the way to Wisconsin, and then I had been a reproductive rights activist in college, and so that led me to this particular topic, which for a little while I thought was too close to you know, uh, my life. But then I realized that while that might be true, uh, it also sort of sustained me through this long project, um, which of course a dissertation has to.
0: Well, that uh, actually segues into my next question. It's all very interesting, which is tell us how you came to write Tiny You.
1: Well, um, I- in my master's degree I had written a a master's thesis on the anti or at the about the anti-equal rights amendment movement which was also another you know socially conservative movement um and and really based in in the 1970s but after the that project I sort of felt like I had that had run its course and it felt not as relevant which of course now it is because the equal rights amendment is coming back but I really wanted something that that felt very relevant. And it was an issue that I had been um, engaged in politically in college. I had worked for a reproductive rights movement um, at Michigan, but also my two best friends were um, they weren't activists, but they were anti-abortion. They, they, they opposed legal abortion. They had been raised Catholics and um and and so that experience sort of led me to the project, but also my my conversations with them helped frame some of the questions I asked or, or some of the interests I had when approaching this. Uh, one of them, who didn't really identify as a Catholic much anymore, the thing that really had, had set with her over the years, had sort of kept her with her anti-abortion politics, was... Um, was that she had seen the Silent Scream, which is this very intense anti-abortion film, um, where supposedly of a of a fetus sort of screaming while in the midst of a, an abortion, which which pro-choice people have have debunked, but is this very important tool for the anti-abortion movement? She had seen it in Sunday school growing up, and it was so powerful. That so many things in her life, including her other politics or religion, had shifted, but this particular film and that particular moment had just so had made such an impression on her that that part of her politics just couldn't change, um, and, and that sort of governed some of the questions I asked. Why I sort of looked in this book um, at at culture, political culture, mm-hmm. uh, and sort of the way that worked in terms of this grassroots mobilization as opposed to sort of laws. I really wanted to know, really work into those and understand those moments of conversion and how, um, and conversions that really uh, stood the test of time Um, and really think about how a movement made those and how that factored into their success um, over, over such a long period of time. So that's really yeah. how what what brought me to to this project and some of the early sort of ways I started thinking about what kind of subjects I would I would look to and what, what kind of questions I would ask.
0: That makes a lot of sense especially for people who have been on the uh reproductive justice spectrum of things it's always a question of trying to understand how people get to these uh, conservative kinds of viewpoints. Mm -hmm. And so I think you do a really good job of framing those questions and those answers in your book. Uh, I know that you speak about this within your book, but can you explain to audiences why the book is called Tiny You?
1: Yeah. So the, um, the core argument, one of the core arguments of the book is that this movement makes the uh, the political personal to many white conservative Americans and I'm really sort of inverting this classic feminist argument right that that feminism helped women be able to connect experiences they thought were individual or personal um, and that were, assumed for so long to be not political at all, but once they saw them all together, they envisioned them as they saw for what they were as political and socially constructed and that thus able to be, you know, really dealt with in a political way. But what I see happening with the anti-abortion movement is sort of the inverse that these were this political idea that anti-abortion activists had that, that fetuses were were akin to fully born human beings, that they were babies and in all sort of, in all sort of moral biological senses and thus should also um, have the same political rights. That, that political argument, what they did was that they made it feel personal by integrating it into uh, Americans' everyday lives, especially everyday Americans who went to church or, or entered spaces where where these activists were really working in earnest. And so oh, through this process, um, anti-abortion activists were incredibly successful at getting uh, a lot of conservative white Americans to think of the fetus as a tiny you, as, as akin to them, as like them um, as, and that their identities became very tied up with with fetuses and with preser- the preservation of fetal life, um, and really the the structure of the book is how anti-abortion activists so clearly and compellingly link uh, link the preservation of, fe- of fetuses to the identity uh, the identities of Christian woman, child, and and family that that they really are working to tie those identities together, and thus make When they feel like fetuses are endangered, that also conservatives themselves through these other identity categories also feel vulnerable, feel like victims of the sort of modernizing secular society they they envision as, you know, sort of oppressing them.
0: Yeah, I found that completely fascinating when I was reading your book. And uh, this next question that I have is kind of related to what you were saying because I was somebody who has lived and observed the anti-abortion movement throughout my life. And in fact, I felt like you were kind of speaking to my youth and young adulthood when I was reading it. And I've always assumed that it was spearheaded by men because they've often been the public face of the movement in terms of state and national politics. Here I'm thinking of people like Operation Rescues, Mm -hmm. Randall Terry, or James Dobson's focus on the family. But your book has convinced me otherwise. So I'd like you to please talk about how women in the grassroots shaped this movement.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, this this book is really about all different kinds of anti-abortion activists, but I would say the heart of it is really um, the right to life organizations, uh, which are which were the ones that early, very early on um, who were formed and then sort of continued throughout. Operation Rescue and other more radical groups sort of, um, join up. And, but these groups were really the backbone and they, from the very beginning, were staffed, maintained, and, and eventually sometimes led by women. They never got the kind of attention that Operation Rescue got. And there've been other great histories about sort of some of those um, ways in which these more evangelical dominated groups like o- Operation Rescue, there were tensions between sort of right to life groups that were dominated by women and Operation Rescue um, that was had definitely a male leadership and really envisioned men as leaders, sort of the conflicts between them. I This book is really sort of uh, partly because that work's been done, but I, I it was really emphasizing continuity over sort of uh, the sort of disjuncture between um, groups like Right to Life and Operation Rescue, because I see there's really a consistent cultural politics, and that women are very central. Uh, they are not the only people by any means; men are part of it, but that they're very central in all these organizations doing that kind of cultural work. Um, they are, they are, uh, you know, sort of working in crisis pregnancy centers, they are working in schools to try to transform inside and outside schools to try to transform children's notions of abortion. And, um, and so this is not a book solely about women, but I really see women who have always been the backbone of the anti-abortion movement, as really shaping the intimate politics, the cultural politics that bridge that, that mainstream radical divide that they are mm-hmm. the ones who are taking this into these homes and churches and schools, um, alongside men, but really being at, at least, uh, you know, often leaders, but, but really, uh, really at, at least they're, they're a majority really in, in I think all anti-abortion groups. Um, and, and I think we can see that in the kind of cultural politics that play out.
0: Yes, I can. I can see that. And why do you think that? I mean, you argue this throughout your book, but why do you think that they do uh, take such a lead in this anti-abortion movement when uh, sort of abortion really affects women in ways that it does not affect men?
1: Yeah. Well, this is uh, this book fits in a broader literature of sort of investigating that point. Right? Why do women? participate in conserv- in conservatism why do they lead conservative movements and especially why do they participate and lead in socially conservative movements um and and so this is just one one uh part of the the answer i've got i mean i i, I think that women women participate in this um because there is this this danger i think uh, for them, in sort of the changes that that are sort of arising in the United States in the nineteen seventies, nineteen sixties, really onward, um, and they feel empowered by some of the gender ideologies that that sort of preceded that moment, right? About about motherhood and um, the valuing of sex within marriage. They feel like that's been a privilege that they've been afforded. They also are as enmeshed, right. In religious cultures, especially these activists who see, um, not that, not just power, but really morality is shaping their life, right. A very particular type of sexual morality, um, that they then feel like they are protecting for themselves and for society. Um, And, and I think that, uh, but I I also think, and I, I, these activists I talk about are, I want to be clear that they are not simply relics of the past. A lot of the women, especially the women who, uh, take leadership positions, who start these organizations are often professionals. They, they might have a lot of kids at home. They might very much value their roles as mothers. They certainly do, but they also are, um, they are very much uh, uh, professional women, right? They're nurses, they're social workers. And so they have um, sort of straddled this divide, right? Which a lot of conservative women do that they enter these, all these male spaces, but in the name of older ideologies about womanhood.
0: The, so what, i oh, sorry. I'm, no, please go, go ahead. The, I was just wondering what ex- exactly they're feeling threatened by.
1: Um, well, I think that they feel threatened by, um, by sort of changing, uh, changing gender and sexuality, sexual ideology at the time, especially women having sex outside of marriage in the ways in which American law and culture is increasingly allowing for that and, and, and not, um, punishing women nearly as much for, um, for that kind that kind of errant sex, so mm-hmm. um, and these you can see these debates sort of opening up gradually when they start making birth control more available throughout the sixties, first on state levels, and then eventually, this U.S. Supreme Court um, sort of strikes down a lot of the anti-obscenity laws that had um, that had limited women's both married and single women's access to to birth control. And so anti-abortion activists, men and women, really see this as an incredible threat to the their, their way of life, but also the, the ways in which sexual morality has, has sort of grounded the nation, they think. They think that this very particular type of family and sexual relationship is central to why America has has been so successful in the world. And so... When increasingly women, not just women always had sex outside of marriage, of course, historians have shown us that, but, but then increasingly you have a society that is not openly condemning it at every turn, making it illegal. And, and then when abortion becomes legal, that is, that is, um, you know, for a lot of these people, it just, it seems like a break with a massive radical break with the world that they knew and, and and especially the sort of sexual, uh, sexual morality that they thought grounded their lives in the nation. But the other thing I think that's really important about this particular movement is that this sort of aborting woman that's having errant sex left and right, that that would have been punished in the past culturally and legally um, by the early seventies, anti-abortion activists uh, either knowingly or subconsciously sort of see the changing times and they don't, they don't make her the number one villain of their movement, that she's always there. She continues to pop up. You still have activists now and again, sort of show their cards about, about her being the, the sort of major problem, but you know, American culture is changing so fast and even as Americans reject a lot of feminism, there are parts of feminism that they are incorporating and sort of um, having sex outside of marriage is one of those things that, um, that people are incorporating more and more into their, into their lives and into sort of their, their moral spectrum. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so Anti-abortion activists sort of see the writing on the wall that way, and and so they they don't clearly name her all the time as as the villain. They focus initially much more on the fetus as vulnerable, innocent human being, and they are sort of cagey about about the woman's role in in sort of victimizing, right? And and, as they have for a long time, they focus on abortion providers, but of course in the Sixties seventies onward they focus on sort of these broader cultural forces that um that uh that are sort of motivating women to to seek out legal abortion so um so the federal government the feminist movement um you know sort of broader secular society, Democrats eventually, right, gays and lesbians eventually, like all of these people Mm -hmm. become these forces, these cultural forces that are leading women astray. And so that's sort of this really, really fascinating shift um, and, and I, I notice I, I trace sort of the connections between the anti-birth control movement and the anti-abortion movement, because I, mm-hmm. the anti-abortion movement is very much birthed from the anti-birth control movement. But that is this very savvy strategical shift between them. The anti-birth control movement was much more comfortable in the sixties and before sort of focusing on, on, on women, right, as the, as right. the culprit and the anti- anti-abortion movement onward they take so much from the anti-birth control movement but they really tamp down that element um and she's still there but they really sort of redirect i think really sort of reading the room about how american culture is changing um because of feminism and that that just simply won't play as well in the 70s and onward
0: Right. And I've even heard people today make the argument that these anti-abortion laws that eventually they're going to work back towards anti-contraception laws. Yeah. So it was fine to, kind of funny to kind of read that in reverse right. in reading your work.
1: Yeah. Well, and a lot of these, um, a lot of these anti-abortion, uh, groups and organizations like crisis pregnancy centers, they are very much the people who work there against contraception, but they also have policies that they do not talk about it because contraception is so, I mean, talk about a popular, <laughs> uh, a popular yeah. thing in American life. You know, I mean, huge majorities of American Catholics have used, contrac- used contraception and have for an incredible amount of time. And, um, and so they know that that is incredibly unpopular. So they just simply have a policy of not speaking about it, even mm-hmm. as it very much is connected to, to the arguments of their movement. And, but they, they do so not because they don't, they don't see the connections, they see them, but they know it'll make the, the anti-abortion politics less popular. And especially if, if other observers can make the connection and say, oh, no, uh, <laughs> yeah you know this might undermine my ability to to get the pill or or something along those lines
0: exactly uh The other thing that surprised me when I was reading this work, you know I was aware before that the Catholic Church had been a powerful force in the anti abortion movement. I was unaware however that various evangelical churches in the US had not been made uh had not made anti-abortion a central platform of their teaching in the late 1960s. Mm-hmm. So how and why did that change?
1: Yeah, I think this is one of those uh these this these histories that the movement has sort of ironed out and erased um or or at least our our modern political culture has. Catholics were always um You know, they were the originators. Their ideas are the foundation of this movement. Um, They just always were. They still are. But um, evangelicals have just become such an important part of the anti-abortion movement, sometimes even overtaking Catholics, that we forget that they weren't always there. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, other historians and myself also have, have sort of noted that evangelicals are so... Pretty um, split. And if they are going to lean a particular way in the late 60s and 70s, it's towards um, making some some kinds of abortion legal. Uh, There's famously a conference in the late 60s of uh, evangelical leaders and ministers. And they basically are like, well, um, we read the Bible literally and the Bible isn't actually giving us a clear answer on whether abortion is immoral. And so we will um, we'll say that a- abortion, sh- you know, we, sh- we think it should be available as long as the woman consults with her minister and her husband in advance and talks to them. Um, and, then, and then the Southern Baptist Convention actually affirms uh, or it puts out uh, statements supporting um, Roe in 1974 and 1976. So Roe is not the pivot point. Right. It, it lasts, mm-hmm. evangelical support for, for illegal abortion, at least at higher levels, persists past. Ro- now, there was an insurgent evangelical, a small one initially, an insurgent evangelical movement sort of changed their denominations' uh, stances on this. But the 70s is also just a broader time of massive change for, for evangelicals, that this is a moment when much more conservative elements Within these denominations um, are really sort of taking over, and 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 really moving evangelicals rightward theologically and also politically, um, and and that they are increasingly making sort of sex within marriage within sort of heterosexual uh, nuclear families this really core part of their politics, and, and as they are, you know, they're also sort of. Doing what a lot of Americans had done in the '50s, which is actually becoming hypersexualized as long as as long as that sex was in within marriage. But then, sort of by the late six, the late '70s and early '80s, this is when you see really massive transformations within evangelical denominations um, and evangelical political culture. Where and I and I see you know sort of certain anti-abortion leaders and activists sort of using some of these tools, generating some of these tools that were new in certain ways and, and sort of taking them around and sort of igniting this conservative dry brush that had been in these conservative denominations. So um, for example, Francis, Francis Schaeffer takes this very famous film around to, um, to, to various uh, evangelical churches called Whatever Happened to the Human Race. And it's this very anti-abortion film, and it's just like so many anti-abortion films. It's just, it is both a, um, it is a, a, a tool the anti-abortion activists use to sort of remake um, religious spaces and insert um, the protection of fetuses into, into people's experience of their faith. Um, and, you know, sort of journalists at the time said that these uh, these films were mobbed like rock concerts. Uh, were, it was just so um, popular and so powerful for these, these evangelicals of the time. And then it just becomes in the 80s and 90s, it very quickly becomes almost the defining feature of what evangelical moral politics is Um, and especially in um, sort of evangelical uh, youth culture that really grows up. Mm -hmm. And this is this effort by evangelical parents to sort of create spaces for their children to sort of live the religion every single day, right? That they can just be sort of um, cocooned in uh, various parts of their faith. Um, And and some of that means developing all sorts of um, new Young tools, uh, you know, like evangelical rock, right? All these things that you can sort of just create entire cultures for your children to live in um, that will be sort of separate from secular society. And one of the things, one of the defining ways that evangelical youth who experience this, one of the defining ways they see them, they set themselves apart from their secular peers or their their peers who are um, not evangelical is their opposition to abortion, that, that, you know, every evangelical rock concert incorporates some sort of anti-abortion music. And um, every interview that that you read with your favorite uh, evangelical, you know, minister or singer is going to somehow not only profess their anti-abortion beliefs, but also invite youth to, um, to also, uh, also, also, um, sort of profess their, their faith around these politics. right. So it's this actually this radical shift for evangelicals between the 70s and the 90s. I mean, it's just massive and it's one that evangelicals I think themselves have erased because there's such an emphasis on literalism and, um, and this emphasis on sort of not uh, theology not changing right? And it, uh-huh. In different ways, but not totally different from Catholics. Um, right. But evangelicals, it actually is uh, for the people who are sort of um, leaders and and leading their flocks with sort of these moral and politics. It is very different over the course of a relatively short period of time.
0: Yeah, no, I was really shocked by that. And uh, of course, you make the connections with Vatican II and the Catholic Church also, because the Catholic Church seemed to be much more lenient about how they were talking about abortion, at least in the 60s, from from what you said. And then it seems like Vatican II brought up some of these cultural anxieties for more conservative Catholics. Yeah, Am I reading that correctly?
1: Well, I think that it wasn't so much that um, it wasn't that the church was lenient per se. But what I do think happened with Catholics is that abortion just didn't take up a lot of room for a long time. The 20th century, the Catholic Church is pretty stable in terms of what they think abortion is that it, they think it's murder um but for a long time throughout most of the 20th century they're really focused on birth control because beginning in the 1920s they you know other faiths are like sort of accepting birth control as a moral good right and so catholics increasingly feel alone and they're increasingly worried that especially as other americans um other people in the world start using birth control that, that they really have to they really have to keep the line firm with, with Catholics about their beliefs. So they spend a lot of time on, on birth control and about, um, sort of natural law and all these kinds of things, but abortion, they just sort of think is, um, you know, almost not even necessary to talk about in depth because it's illegal and they don't need to. Um, Mm -hmm. and then there is this moment in the sixties where people think that, that things are going to change because of Vatican II, And I think they're, they're, mostly think it's going to change around birth control. They, I mean, people really think that, um, after Vatican II, uh, that the church will reform its teaching on birth control. It had just been such a burden for Catholic women for so long. Um, and men too, right. But, but women in particular, and it had been just this thing that priests had to reckon with in the, in confession, you know, that. um, for for many, 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 many years. And they really thought it was going to change. And then in 67, when the Pope um, sort of uh, gives out his hum- Humanae Vitae encyclical and says, nope, we're not changing. This is this incredibly important moment for Catholics because it, and, you know, Catholic scholars have sort of narrated this in a lot of ways, is that it's a moment where Catholics, a lot of Catholics are just like, okay, well, we are not going to, you're not going to house all moral knowing with our church anymore. Right. We make moral mm-hmm. decisions. We will determine. Right. And, and that's a really difficult, that's a really hard thing for Catholics, but this sort of leads you to this. Um, But at least when I was growing up, people called them cafeteria Catholics. Like you pick and choose. <laughs> yeah. You know? Right. Um, which was not really, is not really allowed or shouldn't, you know, and it wasn't how Catholics sort of worked before, but 67 onward, people really do, especially around issues of birth control. And also at the same time as when you start having abortion reform movements grow. And of course, then afterwards, uh, Roe in 1973. And this really leads the church to make their anti-abortion politics very central to their, to their faith, right? That it is just an inescapable part of being Catholic is sort of experiencing anti-abortion politics that, you cannot be a Catholic and not hear anti-abortion sermons. You cannot be a Catholic without in, in, it becomes so much a part of Catholic ritual and thus it mm-hmm. cannot be avoided in the way that it could be before. It just wasn't it just didn't take up the space in right for Catholics sense. before. The late '60s, and then it takes up so much space. Even as you might have an increasingly divided audience, that's just sort of half of them might be tuning you out. But but they they do have to tune out something, right? It is just increasingly central to many parishes, Um, and that's the work of the church, but it's also the work of lay activists who are. Desperately want their church to be unchanging. They desperately want the church to be the bulwark against these kind of social changes, and and so they keep demanding from their priests that they they have time for activists to give their show their their slides, or they you know petition the Sunday school teacher to show the silent screen. You know, and sometimes the silent right. the Sunday school teacher is like absolutely yes, but sometimes they actually have to work to get the minister or or get the priest and get the Sunday school teacher on board. Right. And that's, that's the work of this movement. It isn't just a movement led by a church. It is a church that has created the environment where activists, some people within that church then sort of take those ideas, form a movement, and then often are pushing, um, pushing the hierarchy, but also pushing their parishes to make this, the central piece of, of, um, of the experiences of being Catholic.
0: And yet you make the point that this doesn't work so well in places like New Mexico and the Catholic church there. Yeah. Can you explain the differences there?
1: Yeah. Well, so this is an issue about, um, about race and religion together. So New Mexico, I, this book is really centered on four Western States, um, called the four corner States, uh, Colorado, Utah, Arizona, and New Mexico and what i i really see this as this movement that is by huge huge majority uh, with a, only a few exceptions a, a white movement and um and the questions i approached you know sort of you know sort of the experience of catholics was well if the catholic church is very early on a central place where activists are getting more activists and integrating their their ephemera and ideas into people's lives. Why doesn't that work with ethnic Mexican Catholics um, in these states, which of course, especially in, I mean, all over this, these four states I'm looking at, there are huge numbers of very devout ethnic Mexican Catholics and New Mexico um, more so than probably all the others in terms of the the power that those ethnic Mexicans have. Um, and what I saw happening was that, um, a lot of a a lot of these disputes were about the ways in which people ex- sort of practice their Catholicism, but also what kinds of politics the Catholic Church supported and promoted. Um so this is a moment, especially in the 70s, when when Chicano politics are infusing a lot of ethnic Mexican congregations that activists and um, and congregants and sometimes ethnic Mexic- Chicano um, ministers are demanding that the church acknowledge its deep and profound racism, and also that it support um, Chicano movements, like, uh, you know, sort of like the great boycott that was going on in California, mm-hmm. um, like issues about the Cold War in South America. And, and the catholic church is slowly being pulled along but especially in places where the hierarchy is very white dominated and very antagonistic to these politics they just get a very slow and reticent response or even open antagonism At, that is opposed to what they get from um anti-white anti-abortion activists get when they make similar, when they make calls for the church hierarchy to sort of get on board and promote their politics and make it central, they very much get a positive response, um, maybe a little slower than they'd like, but they get a very positive response um, from the hierarchy there. And and so basically you have a lot of ethnic, uh, ethnic Mexican Catholics, people who are identifying as Chicano and who Feel like this is this white movement that is claiming the mantle of morality and claiming the mantle of civil rights and totally uninterested in issues of racial justice. And the white hierarchy, the largely white hierarchy is listening to these white activists and their politics of, you know, these moral politics, these civil rights politics, but they are ignoring or largely ignoring um, those, you know, ethnic Mexicans who are making claims about deep structural problems within the church um, mm-hmm. at the same time. And and so this isn't necessarily something where, you know, I don't argue that these devout ethnic Mexican Catholics support abortion, legal abortion. In fact, a lot of surveys show that they don't by huge majorities, but they do not join this movement. They do not vote Republican because of this movement. Uh, by and large. And and that's really, uh, I think, a very key difference between ethnic Mexicans, both Catholics and not, um, and sort of the white religious people who are motivated by this, that for white religious people, this becomes not only, you know, central politics, but the politics, right, that nothing else could possibly matter as much as Overturning abortion, getting a a anti-abortion Supreme Court justice, and overturning Roe, right? Like these become the only politics for a lot of white conservative religious people, whereas they remain sort of low on the on the um, ladder of of uh, politics for for ethnic Mexicans, even those who like in their daily life might oppose abortion and might believe that abortion is murder, but they just doesn't become. The thing that compels them.
0: Right. That makes sense. And um, one of the things that you hinted at as you were speaking, which is another big part of your book, is how the white evangelicals especially uh, co-opted, well, the language of the civil rights movement, sometimes the language of feminism, and the kind of language of of Holocaust survivors. Would you like, I know that's a big topic, but would you like to expound on that a little bit?
1: Yeah. So it's not, it's not just evangelicals. I I really see this as born out of the, er, the very earliest parts of this movement, which is really dominated by Catholics. Of course, evangelicals take it up um, in earnest, but this is sort of early on sort of the, some of the pat narratives of this movement, which is that, um, you know, they focus on the fetus as a, as a, a victim of a callous society that creates social hierarchies. And so this, you know, illegal abortion is an extension of sort of um, anti-Black, uh, a, a different manifestation of those same kind of thinking as anti-Black racism, slavery, Jim Crow, the Holocaust, right? They, they These kind of comparisons are the bread and butter of the movement from very early on. Um, really in the early 70s right away anti-abortion activists are comparing Roe to Dred Scott's famous um, Supreme Court case ruling that black people were not equal citizens we're not and and so they say oh this is a moment where the Supreme Court's saying black people aren't fully human and and Roe is saying the same thing for for fetuses so they very much are co-opting liberal rhetorics right about about rights and about justice. Um, and they very much see themselves as an extension, at least rhetorically, as an extension of those movements. They depend upon uh, vis- the visuals, sort of making those kinds of comparisons. Anyone who's been on a college campus, um, one particular movement that goes around to college campuses puts up these huge pictures, um, in the center of campuses. A lot of them are sort of putting. Sort of these famous pictures that that the movement uses is of a of supposedly aborted fetuses alongside Holocaust victims and um and uh, victims of of slavery and, and Jim Crow sort of um either lynchings or or something else. But but key to this, key and I think they do this for a number of reasons. One of which is that conservatives by the 70s Again, have to sort of reckon with a changing American culture that no longer sees the civil rights movement as as riotous or unlawful or disruptive, right? They ha- they have to sort of mm-hmm. make their way in a world that has both whitewashed the civil rights movement, but also sort of put it started to put it in this pantheon of of um, of sort of progress, right? American progress and. And, and they seek to be a part of that. And they're, they're really trying to shed this, the moral stigma then that came for, for white conservatives. And, and so they want to, they're recasting themselves as abolitionists, right? Not as segregationists. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is a way that these white people are really sort of trying to remake what conservative whiteness means to them, right? Uh, a, a way to make it moral and a part of progress. But, but also... It, that always is in the service of white people. And also what is very clear throughout um, all of their sort of rhetoric is that these uh, massive abuses like slavery and Jim Crow and the Holocaust, they are not just used for comparison that anti-abortion activists hierarchize them, right? Always. They're like, Oh, well, it's like Mm -hmm. slavery. It's like um, the Holocaust, but it's worse right right it's worse because um the holocaust had this number of of uh murdered people and if we count all the the abortions it's more right, right. um and and there's also this really really sort of um awful comparison because fetuses can be innocent right, right. in a way that no mm-hmm. born person can be like they just can't right there's like there's no There's no human action that fetuses can take. And so anyone else can be partially culpable for their circumstances, which of course appeals to uh, conservatives who are very interested in personal responsibility and those kinds of rhetorics. Um, And so that this is the most innocent, the most vulnerable, you know, and you have activists say, well, at least, uh, at least... um, you know, Jewish Jews could fight back, or even even <laughs> e- at least Jews could escape. You know, and you're like, and, and yeah. so there's this very clear way in which fetuses are are sort of they borrow from the victimhoods of these other people, but they say, but no, this is this is worse than than that, um, and and so this always and also the solutions are never to incorporate any actual work against racism or anti-Semitism. But they say, if you, you know, if you made abortion illegal, then um, all these other injustices would end also, right, as well. Yeah. And and so there's really no interest in moving into, um, they they very much co-opt the rhetorics of people of color and of Jews, but they don't ever, like, work alongside them for other, for things that, um, that people of color and Jews are, are actually working on in their communities to deal with issues of anti-Semitism, but especially of, of um, racial discrimination. They just don't do it.
0: Right. Yeah, that was, that was also fascinating. So uh, one of the striking things I learned in your book is how powerful visual imagery and material objects were for spreading the ideology of the anti-abortion movement. Can you talk about that and the little bit of left of time we have, and maybe could you speculate on why the reproductive justice movement has been less successful in using such strategies for counteracting the anti-choice movement?
1: Yeah. I, um, I see the this movement is barred very much from the anti-pornography movement of the sixties that sort of made these, um, these anti-porn films, which were also just porn. Um, so central to their, the way that they motivated people. They're like, look, this thing is awful, but also you want access to it. And, and you can sort of take this kind of this, that kind of relationship to this item that you want access to, but also disgust for really compelled so many people to, um, to both you know, come to meetings, but also, um, but also it really helped form their identities. And I think the anti-abortion movement takes this, this core idea and just runs with it, that, that these, um, this ephemera, these fetus dolls, um, the, I mean, early on sort of, um, uh, embalmed fetuses, these pictures, of course, these famous pictures, it's just, they, they put them into people's lives, these intimate corners of people's lives um, they overflow in in people's experiences of their faith and their and sometimes their schools and their homes and and that this becomes this way that fetuses almost become like a member of the family like someone right that they, they it's this ever present part uh, visual where people can connect to and they can carry them around with them. Um, you know, you have uh, these these fetus dolls which are on the cover of the book. Um one of the early types of fetus dolls were manufactured in the 1980s, um, called um th- they were made in Wisconsin, and they were little and they were cheap, and people would just sort of carry the rat them around for a moral emergency. And so you would have, you know, some teachers who are teaching, um, you know, some sort of health class rather than using, I don't know if you did this, but a lot of times people to sort of teachers to teach parenting, they would have you carry around <laughs> a bag of flour for like a week right. or whatever. Well, if you have an anti-abortion teacher, and this did happen quite a few times is that they would have you carry around a fetus doll um, instead. Wow. Right. Or, or your, or people would have, uh, you know, stories of like the lunch lady who would, you know, would have a fetus doll and, um, you know, if she overheard somebody who was, you know, maybe pregnant or or might get pregnant, you know, she'd just sort of whip it out to, to use, right? And so <laughs> and, and so it was just these ways in which you can think about the way that it can be used with others, but how much it might have it would have affected all these people who carry around these materials, right, to have and, and to make so much a part of themselves. Fetus pins, right? I start off with the story of Trent Franks is um famous legislator who his early years when he was um, was in the Arizona House, he always wore a pin um, called the precious feet, which were supposedly feet the size of, I think, an eight week old fetus. And it's just something he always had on his heart and that he could use to speak to anybody who who would remind him of his politics, but also it would be used as a conversation starter. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. In terms of compelling other people to think like him. And, and these are, I think these are absolutely core to understanding the ways in which anti abortion activists shift the worldview of so many people over such a long period of time. It's this way that they sort of populate people's worlds with fetuses. And it's really central to sort of compelling their, their chain, and their, both their potential change politics, but also their commitments. Right, their commitment to this politics.
0: Right. Um, do you see why? Is there an reason why uh, reproductive justice people couldn't use the same kinds of methods to be successful? Yeah, like the coat hangers and things like that. Yeah, I think
1: coat hangers are are interesting. I did. I mean, there was a moment um, where uh, you know, sort of, and this was early on, where where a pro choice movement really tried to. Use some of these really brutal pictures of, of women who had died in the in over the course of um of uh, you know trying to give themselves abortions right and mm-hmm. some of them are just awful right and and I think that was this effort to but they don't they don't do it for very long um because you know there's real there's real reasons why um reproductive justice activists don't use some of these like it is sort of I think they just found that people didn't want to see bloody and dead women. Right. And, and, Mm -hmm. and that they, I I do think that there are reasons why some of these tools work, but also there are reasons why um, reproductive justice people don't use them because I think they think that they're manipulative and grotesque. And um, I, however, I do unfortunately think as time moves on, We will all um, be faced with the brutality of illegal abortion in our daily lives again. I don't think the movement, unfortunately, I don't think the movement is going to need to remind people of that. Um, I think that as abortion becomes more, it's been, you know, inaccessible. It's not been, you know, people haven't been able to access it for a really long time. But I think that the the future we're facing is either that it's going to be fully illegal or functionally illegal. And, um, and I think that then there will be the the reproductive justice movement will not necessarily have to borrow from the anti-abortion movement, but they will, people will, you know, their personal lives will, um, will reflect the brutality of illegal abortion. Once again, I think.
0: Well, again, you've led me to a, a lovely segue, which was, um, your conclusion, Uh, in your book and just what you spoke now seems pretty grim to me. I know. I'm sorry. Do you think that that there is absolutely no hope for a resurgence of a reproductive justice movement that's just as powerful as the anti-abortion movement?
1: Oh, no, I definitely do. I I unfortunately think though that um, I don't know how that will happen. I can see it happening after abortion is made illegal. Like I think that, Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people have just simply become complacent with not, not activists, but Americans have become complacent with the reality that you can get an abortion. If uh, people think they can get one, if they need it, of course people actually in the, in the process of getting it might feel differently, but, but they think that it's illegal. It has been illegal or it has been legal. It will stay legal. Right. And right. And I think that once that becomes no longer true, once people have to start crossing state lines to get abortion, once in the middle of the United States, it's, you know, either done um, illicitly or people have to go elsewhere. Um, I think that that will, I I think that that will motivate an incredible movement um, that will counter the anti-abortion movement. And I think the anti-abortion movement's arguments then also become much, you know, have a lot, People are going to give them a lot more scrutiny. All these things that they've promised will happen, Mm -hmm. right? Once abortion becomes illegal, uh, will potentially, um, you know, look a little less true. Um, you can say anything you want, but, you know, but once it actually happens, um, people will start seeing, seeing women dying, right? They'll start seeing a whole host of, of other problems, um, and seeing women punished, that's the other thing that I think is going to be really different than from before, mm-hmm. is that when abortion was illegal, um, Leslie Regan has shown us in her great book, uh, When Abortion Was a Crime, that you know it, it, women were punished in all sorts of ways when abortion was illegal. They were um, in yeah. profound ways, but they weren't prosecuted for murder. Um, right. And the anti-abortion movement has made that, no matter how much they want to say that women are victims of abortion just like fetuses it doesn't make any sense and we can see that in some of these state laws that are currently on constitution that they do not make that they make you know abortion illegal and abortion murder they don't make any allowances for oh but we won't prosecute the women who seek them out as murderers right that, that right. doesn't make any sense so i think once we see women being prosecuted a lot of women and probably like the women who American society remains most sympathetic to, right. These like Mm middle-class white women being prosecuted for murder. Um, I think that that's going to motivate quite a response, but um, unfortunately that's a, that's a world I don't want to be in, but I do think is coming.
0: Well, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. (laughs) Well, Jen, we've taken up a lot of your time, so I just want to ask you one final question, and uh, then we will say goodbye. Uh, where do you see your research interests going sometime after this nightmare of a pandemic? <laughs> um,
1: yeah, I I don't quite know. I have a couple of ideas. Right now, um, doing this work with people about people, a lot of them who are still alive, has been hard. Um, and working on such a an issue that's so relevant has been really exciting and good, but also very hard. And so there's part Mm -hmm. of me that would like to move back into the early 20th century, um, and talk about dead people, (laughs) uh, (laughs) and, uh, talk about some change that I see as having some positive outcomes for society. Um, so, Uh um, I'm thinking about that. I I also might return to the late 20th century and, and talk about reproductive the history of reproductive justice movements in red states um and Mm -hmm. i've been really inspired by a conference that was at the university of oklahoma for so long called take root of all these reproductive justice groups who have been working in these spaces that are the hardest to work in in terms of these and just doing a lot of innovative um transformative progressive work and so there might there might be once i sort of can get my head around it i might come back to that
0: Oh, That sounds great. Well, thank you so much. Uh, that was, I was speaking with Dr. Jen Holland about her new book, Tiny You, available everywhere that has an internet connection. Thank you very much. Thanks.